I want you to turn your Bibles this morning first to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. I can think of nothing better to say than turning your Bibles. We're here to hear the word, and my prayer has been that the teaching of the word of God would have an effect upon your life in such a fashion that um, you live a joyful and productive life in the Lord Jesus. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and I'll tell you ahead of time, it is not going to be where the remainder of the sermon stays, but it is a starting point. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. And after I read the text, and I trust you are following in your copy of the word, that you will join me in prayer for the enabling of the Spirit of God in the preaching of the Word of God and the application of the Word to the lives of His people. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, our hearts come with glad dependence on your enabling both in my preaching of the word and its application in the lives of your people its effect on those that may be here that do not know the Lord Jesus yet as their Savior that you might be glorified by our delight in you by our confidence in your wisdom by our awe in the way in which you have so ordained your scriptures to, to frame and instruct our lives that we might live joyful, profitable, victorious lives in a fallen and broken world. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach in the power of the Spirit and that your word would be received with the help of the Spirit in the lives of your people. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is my blessing to preach here this morning, and I am thankful for Pastor asking me to preach on the subject of prayer because uh, most of you perhaps don't know that my wife and I became members back in 1980 here at Maranatha, and the first service that I ever attended here was a prayer meeting. I had been relocated to Columbus to work at International Harvester, and uh, I went to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, rode my little bicycle down the road and came here 
from Red Roof Inn, Rave over here on Treby Road. And after the prayer meeting, uh, some dear people thought it wasn't a good idea for me to bicycle back to the thing at night, and they threw my bike in the back of the uh, sedan that they had, and they took me back to the Red Roof. I have to tell you that my first experience at prayer here at Maranatha was a little unsettling because I remember grabbing a prayer bulletin at the front door and then going to a prayer room. It was actually where the nursery is now. And I went into this room. There were about 15 men in there. And, uh, and someone pushed the door shut, and they began praying, and they didn't stop for 30 minutes. And I thought, this, is a lot. this must be the deacons. I didn't say anything, you know, first time. I have to confess, I was used to prayer meeting being some time where people dragged a big chalkboard out, and then they would write down organ recital. Do you follow what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with organ recitals. At my age, I understand more appropriately. But uh, normally, the organ recital goes on for about 27 minutes of the 30, and in the last three minutes, someone brilliantly says, oh, look at the time. We need to pray. And so it's like, pray for all the sick people and pray for all the missionaries, and, and you're done. And so I walked into that room, and someone shut the door, and they prayed for a solid 30 minutes, and I thought, well, I'll try a different room next week. <laughs> Same thing. I say this with great respect. Judith and I joined this church primarily because of prayer, not because of the excellent Bible teaching of Pastor Bill Brock. I have to confess, it took me a little while to adapt to him and to his style. He was a godly teacher of the Word of God, but he was a little crustier than the previous pastor who had ministered to me so graciously, and I thought, I didn't know that God wrapped things differently on occasion, and, but Judith and I became members, and we sat way back there with our children. I went into the ministry, and for five years, the people here at Maranatha continued sending me a prayer bulletin that told me every week what was going on and the things they were praying for and kept me informed of this ministry. And my heart was affected deeply by things they were going through. And when I was called um, and asked if I would consider candidating, I said, well, you have to give me a week to pray. And uh, my wife, who is a lot more uh, astute than I am, had it figured out immediately. She was wise enough not to advise me. And uh, God brought me here. Well, that's a little bit of background, and it's not the most important thing. The text is preeminent. And so I want us to look here at, at the counsel the apostle gives to us regarding the matter of prayer. And, and he says this, prayer is of primary importance. Here we are, we're at the end of this wonderful epistle to the church at Ephesus. And uh, we have enjoyed the instructions regarding the, uh, the beauty of God's work in saving us and uh, the blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus and a reminder of the fact that none of us have come to faith by our own works, but we've been drawn by grace and made his children. And after the first three chapters that are rich theologically, we step into the second three chapters that, in that Pauline characteristic fashion, give us practical instruction on how we are to behave. 
I mean, at the end of it, we know this, good theology always creates godliness. When our heart is right towards God, we end up acting in a fashion that displays our relationship. Isn't that right? I've found in my own life when, when I'm having attitudes, I do have them occasionally, unfortunately, I, I have to come back to recognize that those attitudes are really not something that I can um, uh, cast off on someone else and say, well, I wouldn't have acted this way if you'd been nicer to me. I invariably find out that, that there's been some strain in my communion with the Father, and it plays out in being moody or ill-spirited or unforgiving or whatever. And so Paul reminds us in the first portion of the book of a right view of God. In the second portion of the book, he reminds us how that plays out in the way in which we live. I have to tell you, I've enjoyed listening to your singing this morning. I love it. It's one of the things I miss. For some of you who don't know me, I am serving as a temporary interim pastor in Marion, Ohio, uh, with the blessing and encouragement of our pastors here and the leadership. I'm a member of this fellowship, and I have been tasked, in part, to minister to another church, and I hope, I look forward to coming back when the Lord provides uh, another man there. Here we are. Paul says to the church at the end of this beautiful letter, he says, let me close off with one practical bit of advice. He says, pray all the time. Pray all the time. I do remember as a younger man uh, reading different passages in which this issue of praying all the time would appear, and, and it, it was kind of frustrating. Uh, how do you do that? I mean, my devotional habit was one of getting up fairly early and spending time reading the Scriptures and praying, but then the all the time kind of bothered me. It's like, how do I do that? Uh, do, I, do I kind of exclude myself from other activities and responsibilities and focus extremely or ex exclusively on the matter of prayer? And if I'm going to do that, how much time is really appropriate for praying all the time? Probably none of you have ever been so uh, illogical in your thinking, but I remember really kind of trying to think this through. Okay, okay so at what point do I, do I hit the all the time pattern? And it was hard. And I think really as, as we begin to think about it a little more carefully, we recognize that the answer to this all the time lies more in an understanding of our relationship and the nature of prayer. And so as we think about the nature of prayer this morning, I, I want to have you recognize just a number of different ways in which the Scripture gives us indication of what prayer is. For one, it's adoration. And I think, and some of you would rise with me to, to just enjoy the, the instruction of Scripture when it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? All that is within me, bless his holy name. And one of the things that should characterize our prayer is this spirit of just adoration and awe for the beauty and the glory of our God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And this morning when... Our dear brother, Bob Consul, called me to tell me that uh, Cheryl had slipped into glory. Um, I thought to myself of Psalm 1611, where it says, In thy presence is the fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. Does it get better than that? 
New Year's Day was a hard day for Bob and a wonderful day for Cheryl. And so as we step into the subject of prayer, we recognize that one of the characteristics is that we, we are filled with adoration, just a, an expression of joy at the God that you and I have been blessed to know. Prayer also has lament. And just as I have cited one psalm, I could cite another in which we find the, the psalmist pouring out his heart, just the, the brokenness of dealing with the circumstances and the burdens of life. And, and there's not a one of you here that has not had those moments where you, you've not been able to sleep because of a family issue or because of a grief, and, and your heart has just poured out to the Lord, and there is a comfort in knowing that the one who cares the most hears you. Prayer also involves thanksgiving. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the nations. Prayer also involves petition. And I want to take a minute and just have you turn, if you would, back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 and 19. And I, I'm going to reference this because I think if you're looking for some verses that would be very valuable in your personal arsenal, these would be some of those verses. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here is the apostle praying that the people who he loves so deeply would not be caught up with health and wealth and you know, other things that much of the world is engaged in, but that they would know the love of Christ. And in knowing that love, that they would be, here it goes, filled with all the fullness of God. So there's a place in our prayer life for petition. There's also a place in our, a place in our prayer life for for prayers for deliverance. I mean, I stop and think this morning, a wonderful song. I have to confess, John, I've not heard that before, and a good song. Um, Father, if you're willing, what'd you say? Remove this cup from me. There's a time where we come and we're under the challenges and burdens of life, and, and, and we, we do ask that he would deliver us from those things. And then there's the prayers of confession that you find in Scripture. I stop and think about uh, David's prayer in Psalm 51, and I'm always struck by, by the fact that while David carried on in sin for it's estimated probably two years, when finally he was uh, convicted, he was confronted and convicted, how did he handle it? It was quite public, wasn't it? Am I right? 
he wrote a psalm. He handed it to the song leader and said, do this on Sunday. Well, it's the Sabbath. That's stunning, isn't it? See, when we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God on one hand, and we're also letting it be known that what God has to say about sin is correct. You honor him by letting him know that what he says is true. And there's a place in our prayer life for confession. I think about the passage in 1 John where it says, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, an indication of, of where you are in part in a spiritual sense is, is the regularity and the sincerity with which you go about the matter of, of personal confession. You ever been around people that have never said sorry for anything? In case you don't know, they're really not very close to Jesus. <laughs> they might be quite impressed with their godliness, but the truth of the matter is, is that given the reality that we all struggle with sin, and Jesus in his teaching, what he, what he taught us, the, the issue of, in fact, we just we sang that one or we, we uh, dealt with it earlier, you know, it talks about the fact, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. This, this business of confession should be one of the characteristics in the believer's life and an indication of where you are in your process of progressive growth spiritually is how sensitive to you are to the sin that creeps in in your thought life. And by the way, one of the things I've learned is that, uh, and I remember at one point thinking, when I get older, I won't have as many problems with sin. I mean, I'm hoping I grow and spiritually progress until I get, and uh, I grew up in a, well, I actually went to a college that was Arminian, and the idea of entire sanctification was very appealing. I mean, the idea that you can finally reach the point where you don't struggle with sin anymore was just, it was winsome. That's what I want. I will say it. 74 I don't struggle as much with some of the things I used to struggle with but I find that I still struggle with things okay so my prayer life has confession and then I think of, of the fact that when we find ourselves thinking about the subject of prayer we also are reminded that that our prayer life should it should involve um, request for wisdom in James chapter 1 it says if any man lack wisdom let him ask of God and incidentally <laughs> when we ask of God <laughs> we're we're not asking for kind of a little new dream we're just asking that he refresh our memory to the word he's already given us am I right when someone says God said to me I'm I, you know, I've learned to be a little cautious in what I say sometimes. Um, but, but I think to myself, are you referring to what the Bible has to say or to some little voice that you've had pop up? I'm a little suspicious of anything that you cannot frame scripturally. And it's important when you think about the subject of prayer that, that your life is, is marked by this rich diversity of prayer in everything. <laughs> um, 
How many of you know that we had a cold spell here? And, and when cold spells happen, tires begin to go a little flat. Am I right? So I inflated my tires to have that silly thing that tells me that the tires are low, uh, not beyond the dash. And I took off the little caps, right? I put three of them back on. I failed to put one on. And so there I am looking in the gravel for a gray cap. Ah, thanks. <laughs> May it be unto you. I, I want to tell you that immediately, I, I, I about 30 seconds of scanning, and I'm, I'm a hunter, I'll find this thing. And uh, there I am, uh, self-confidence, and it didn't work. Uh, so, Lord, will you help me? By the way, he didn't help me. Okay. But my point is, is that there I was, faced with a challenge, going to prayer. Last Monday, we came home from Todd and Heather's and uh, found the house rather cold. I uh, went to check and noticed that uh, our boiler wasn't working. And I knew last week that Bob was caring for his wife and I didn't think it was appropriate for me to call and ask him to help me. And so the first thing I did was pray. The first thing I did was pray. And I can tell you that I don't like reading uh, manuals. And there I was reading the manual and then after a, a little while of frustration and continuing to pray, I went and talked to my son. He says, why don't you YouTube it? <laughs> I, I, that was an answer to prayer. Some guy in Italy had a kludgy, I mean, it's all right. I, the boiler's working. I, all I had to do was increase the water pressure and voila, there I have a hot, the boiler's working and my wife was ecstatic and I was pleased. You see, what area of your life does not require prayer? There's no area. In fact, I put it this way, that a, a person's prayer life is a clear indication of where they are spiritually. Who can afford to not ask God for wisdom? Who can be so calloused to not be thankful for his abundant mercies and gifts. <laughs> Who's free from the entanglements of private sins that have no remedy apart from confession and cleansing? Who can endure the storms of life apart from leaning hard on our great shepherd? As you think about the, the subject of, of prayer, it, it's, it's appropriate for us to take some time to think a little bit about how Jesus prayed. And uh, I remind you that he prayed at his baptism. Now, by the way, who is Jesus? He's the second person of the Godhead. And here he is, our Savior, all God, and all man engaged in prayer. <laughs> he prayed at his baptism. He prayed before choosing the 12. Now, by the way, that's striking when you realize that he knew ahead of time who was going to betray him. 
he prayed before raising Lazarus. Do, do you think he was uncertain how things were going to end up? No. But he prayed. He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed before meals. Um, feeding the multitudes at the Last Supper. And when he was eating with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember that scene where he'd been walking along and he gave them what I would call probably the, the uh, shortened version of Hebrews chapter 1 through 13, recitation of the Old Testament in relationship to his coming and ministry and purposes. And, and they invited him in, and at supper, what did he do? He, he prayed. He prayed before the cross. And he prayed on the cross. It's interesting to recognize that, that his prayer life was of such a nature that others asked him to teach them about prayer. And his instructions on prayer that we find in Luke are essentially a summary of a number of different Old Testament passages. And I think it's, it's appropriate for us to remind ourselves that, that when he gave teaching on the subject of prayer, that he linked the matter of prayer back to Scripture already given. In relationship to that, it's fair to say that, that our prayers should always be framed whether by a formal recitation of Scripture or by the, the substance of Scripture, that when we are praying, we are praying according to the Word. In John chapter 15, verse 5, and valuable to us as we think about the matter of prayer, Jesus said something that, that I think we should remember. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's appropriate when we think about the lives that we are called to live until he takes us home, that if we cannot pull off anything on our own, that our lives should be marked by constant prayer. There's, this, there's an interesting illustration of the value of prayer that I want you to have stuck in your memory. Turn your Bible back to Exodus chapter 17. We're talking about what's the, the value and the significance and the, the, uh, the benefit of prayer. And we'll just go for a second back to Exodus chapter 17. You know the story, but worth looking at it again. You find in verse 8, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, I just want to have you frame it in your thinking, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. You think about the significance of that? Joshua, you go down there and, and engage in, in mortal combat. Uh, me, I'm not going down there with you. I'm going to stand over there on top of the hill way away, and I will have the staff in my hand. Now, 
we want to attribute wonderful thoughts to Joshua and believing in the power of God. Is that, that's a good thing because Moses is up there and he's doing his thing. You know how the story goes, don't you? Moses got tired of holding his hands up. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the only way to pray is with your hands up in the air, though I don't think it's bad. But Moses got tired of doing that, and, and all he did was what? Let him down. And what happened? What happened? The battle going on down there began to go against Israel. And Moses watching and those who were there with him realized the absolute necessity of having prayer. And they held up the hands of Moses and victory for Israel was gained. How important is prayer in your life? How often do you find yourself as you go through your day, as you go through your challenges, find yourself brought to the Lord with confidence and dependence, pouring out your heart and asking him to work? I, by nature, am a professional warrior. Um, I have advanced degrees, and I, I used to find that on occasion my mind would not turn off at night and I would I would find myself caught up in that and I learned a very important lesson that prayer is far more effective than anxious pondering about what you cannot change and I came to the point of willingly saying to the Lord since you have decided to keep me awake I will pray until you think it's appropriate to put me to sleep. And I'm going to ask that in the day that follows, you give me adequate strength to accomplish whatever you think I need to do. One of the things I would do is kind of lie there awake, pondering life, and also being anxious about how I was going to be exhausted the next day. Anybody ever done that? So fruitless. And so I would ask you to consider this morning how often is your heart caught up in communion with your God and Savior, the lover of your soul, and the one that someday you are going to see and be satisfied with. Well, let's look at another piece of the text. By the way, I don't see... Oh, ooh. Second... Just a little note. Years ago, I read a very good book on preaching. It was called uh, Well-Driven Nails by Byron Yawn, of all names. And he had three main points. Preaching should be passionate. It should be clear. It should be simple. And my wife said there should be a fourth point, which is brief. She's here to hear me. So I'm going to skip. I I'm not going to skip. We're going to talk about praying in the Spirit just very briefly, and then we're going to close with what I think is valuable as well. I have to tell you that the second portion of the passage here says praying in the Spirit, 
And, uh, and I, I just want to clarify that praying in the Spirit is not talking about praying in some otherworldly language or fashion. It, it is talking about praying the same way in which you live an upright life, namely in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 is about godly living and woven into the text and inseparable from every aspect of godly living is a dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do what we would not do by nature. Husbands, love your wives. How? In the power of the Spirit. Children, obey your parents. How? In the power of the Spirit. And here, Paul is talking about the subject of prayer, and he says, pray in the power of the Spirit. In relationship to that, as you think about how dependent you are on the Holy Spirit in your praying, I'm reminded of the value of understanding the, the, the enabling of the power of the Spirit from this illustration. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, you find out that the disciples, after Christ's ascension, having been given the Great Commission, and having enjoyed Jesus in their presence for 40 days, were told to wait another 10. Why? Until they received the power of the Holy Spirit in which they were to go about ministry. That's significant given the importance of the Great Commission and the appointment of Christ to his disciples, as the Father sent me, so send I you. But you're going to wait until you have the power of the Spirit. And so I would appeal to you that that your prayer life should be marked by the enabling of the Spirit of God. Now, one more thing. I want to have you consider how Paul closes off with a very personal note. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This text is one of eight and perhaps nine, depending who wrote Hebrews, and I don't know the answer, um, at least eight different places where Paul asked personally for prayer. As I was doing some study this last week and thinking this through, I I couldn't find, and maybe someone can help me with that, but I could never find an instance where Paul asked for financial support. He only asked for prayer. And uh, I would have you note these passages in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 4. One of the things he asks for is that, that he would say the right things. In 2 Thessalonians, which I read already, that the Word of God would have free course. Hebrews 13, 18 is a little different in that that the author asks that, that people would pray for him that his life is lived with gospel dignity and value. It's evident that Paul, and by extension your pastors, need your prayer to declare the Word of God clearly and to live lives that demonstrate it. I, uh, I know from personal experience that it's far too easy to say things that have no eternal value. I remind myself of the passage in uh, 
<laughs> Proverbs 10, verse 19, where it says, uh, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. The Holy Spirit is not obligated to take any man's limited understanding and experience, flawed as it is by the noetic effect of the fall and by indwelling sin, and do anything with it. He may, but he's not under obligation. He is obligated to work with the text of Scripture. Passages that are just wonderful in relationship to this. Jeremiah chapter 23 the prophet says this, the guy that has the dream, go ahead and tell it. The man who has the word, make it clear. That's a summary. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. When you go to see your pastor, when they open up the book, they're not there to tell you stories. They're there to take the Word of God and make it clear with the enabling of the Spirit of God that your life is transformed by the power of the Word and the Spirit. I still remember Dr. Brock preaching at my ordination. And he preached to the people of the congregation my dad preached to me and one of the things that Dr. Brock hammered was that people are to pray for their pastor for many years I've sat down here And before I preach, there are three things that I mutter to myself. I believe in the Word of God. I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the prayers of God's people. Let's close in prayer. Not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord. Amen.